China, for instance, used 70% of its power still comes from coal, right? So we have to change this. It's, you know, 2023, for goodness sake. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we salute those who take biomimicry to the extreme in a quest to mimic the sun. Today, we're talking about how smashing together hydrogen atoms can release a huge burst of energy in the process. Energy that comes without all that baggage of greenhouse gas emissions and nuclear waste. Now, we're not at the point of a Mr. Fusion powering your flux capacitor, but we are at a point where organizations like the DOE, the U.S. Department of Energy, think it's time to put forward $46 million in funding to eight fusion companies with the hopes of getting a pilot demonstration within a decade. And we feel honored to have one of those companies as a guest on our show. But first, the requisite podcast details. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support startups in gaining media attention by leading Technica Communications and all genders to gain the careers that they dream of with women in clean tech and sustainability. If you've listened to a few episodes, it's safe to say you must like what you're hearing. So please take a moment right now, open your podcast app, and leave us some stars. Five stars would be amazing. We really appreciate it. Any amount of stars you feel is appropriate, please leave them. And give us a review if you want. Help other people find this show. Additionally, please consider becoming a Patreon member and support us financially. Every little bit helps. These are the two gifts that you can give us today. And now a word from Resource Labs. If and when nuclear fusion reaches commercial scale, it holds a tremendous amount of potential to deliver massive amounts of sustainable low carbon energy, perhaps more potential than the small modular reactors from the fission side of nuclear energy, which we covered in season one's episode, To Nuclear or Not. Nuclear physicists have been working on the fusion challenge since the 1950s, and just this past year, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory achieved a net energy gain in a fusion experiment using lasers. Now, the fusion ignition generated 3.15 megajoules of energy output, and the laser delivered 2.05 to its target. Then, six months later, they replicated the experiment. So, a net gain of 1.1 megajoules of energy. What does that really mean? Yep, we have a wonk alert here. I researched this, and while I'm not an expert, generally speaking, one megajoule is equal to 276 watt hours. That would be enough to power a 100 watt light bulb for 2.76 hours. Now, I agree, not a lot of energy, but you gotta start somewhere. And the US Department of Energy called what Lawrence Livermore Lab did, quote, a major scientific breakthrough decades in the making that will pave the way for advancements in national defense and a future of clean power. Now, frankly, I wish they would have just left out the defense part. Can we just have clean power and not war? But anyway, our guest today is Randall Volberg, who co-founded Type 1 Energy, and he leads their business development. Type 1 recently secured $29 million from the Bill Gates Breakthrough Energy Ventures, as well as other VCs. 
He's a serial entrepreneur and has served various fusion companies and fusion industry organizations in the past, which shouldn't be a coincidence since the science of fusion might actually be his first love. I've been in love with him since I was a kid, about eight years old. Its ability to transform the energy landscape uh, with clean, abundant, modern energy to elevate humanity uh, to, you know, an advanced civilization that can at the same time pro progress the planet and people as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm so excited to have you on the show, because as an energy nerd and reader of sci-fi novels, I have been... <laughs> <laughs> paying attention to, to fusion energy for a long time. But for some of our listeners, let's start at, at the basics. Can you briefly explain the science behind fusion and how it compares to fission, which is the type of nuclear energy most of us are familiar with? Yeah, so um, they're both nuclear processes, uh, but nuclear fission is the process of taking heavy atoms like uranium and splitting them, creating energy. So fusion is the opposite process. It's the same process that powers the cosmos, basically, at the furnaces of all the stars and our own sun is a fusion process where you're taking light atoms like hydrogen and fusing them together to create energy. Um, this is uh, this is the foundational energy source. Mm -hmm. I think, and it's often considered the holy grail of energy. Like if we can harness this, and control it, it 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 opens up this amazing reality for all of us. So, um, why do you think it is has such immense promise for the future? Um, I think so. There, our name comes from it's inspired by the Kardashev scale, an astronomer who basically defines societies based on the amount of energy that they can master. Um, and so right now we're type zero civilization, right? And we get the majority of that energy from fossil fuels. Um, we need to level up to a type one civilization where the majority of our energy comes from clean, sustainable energy sources. Um, but in order to do that kind of heavy lifting, um, it, we need a, a really power dense source like fusion to be able to meet that demand. And so fusion has this combined set of features that make it suitable for a kind of fundamental power source for the planet. It is, um, the fuel comes from water, right? So deuterium, an isotope of hydrogen. Um, no wars were fought over sea water, which is great. Um, yeah. And um, it has, uh, it. there's no risk of meltdowns. The process is completely different from a nuclear fission process. It's physically incapable of having a meltdown. There's no runaway chain reaction events. Um, the uh, the ability where you can cite um, the devices where they're used, so you don't have a lot of need a lot of transmission infrastructure or easements like you would with say renewables to get it from where the energy is to where you need it. Um, this has actually been uh, fully supported by recent regulations of how fusion's licensed in places like the U.S. and Canada, the U.K., where um, they are adopting the regulation framework that is used for nuclear medicine facilities and not for nuclear fission. So this really allows us to cite the, the power where it's needed. And, um, and I think largely fusion is just, it's, it's the forever fuel, right? It's, it's the fact that we have this unlimited clean source. The byproducts are helium. Um, it doesn't have any risk of 
proliferation issues or all the sort of downsides that have traditionally been associated with nuclear energy doesn't exist with fusion. Let's dig a little deeper on how this science works. Um, I understand that that it's basically fusion science is about how plasma is contained to allow it to achieve um, uh, the conditions necessary to create uh, fusion. And um, most people think of the the tokamak design. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, tokamak. Yeah. Okay. And um, and there's been some recent news about some companies who are coming out with some um, some that design. But you're using a fundamentally different design and approach. Can you tell us more about what you're doing and how it differs from the tokamak design? Sure. Yeah. So the Stellarator this is the focus of the device that we're working on. And it's a cousin of the tokamak, belongs to the same family known as magnetic toroidal confinement, where you're basically taking a donut or sort of pretzel-shaped device. You're using magnets to confine that hot ionized gas or, or plasma. But in order to do it in these ways, you need to add a twist to the magnetic field to adequately confine that plasma to reach those fusion conditions. Um, they do it in two very distinct ways. So the tokamak uses a combination of magnets and a it runs a current through the plasma, an electric current through the plasma that is put in there from a central solenoid, basically the, the apple core, if you were to look at this, right, at the tokamak. Um, that works really well too. And the, the combination of those two things creates that twist and it works really well, but there's kind of a catch, right? The plasma is inherently unstable. You're kind of, it's a bit of a brute force method. You're kind of getting the particles to do what they're not naturally wanting to do. Um, and so whereas the Stellarator says, hey, we're not going to put any plasma currents in here. We're only going to use these external magnets to confine the plasma. And we're going to kind of design the shape of these magnets to kind of almost like Aikido, where you're going with the natural flow of how the particles want to move. But because of that, you have to design the engineering is, is more complex. How you shape those magnets, how you shape the chambers means you, you have more work and complexity in, involved in the actual engineering of the device itself. But once that's done, you have a, a very, very stable plasma. Um, one of the key differences is because it can run continuously. It doesn't cycle in the case of a tokamak. Because you have that central solenoid putting current in the plasma, it, it it ramps up and then drops down. So it operates in a pulse mode. This is not ideal for things like, you know, when you're running a power plant, you don't want cycling of the, the mechanical forces, the stresses that happen to the materials from a temperature standpoint. So if you can just run continuously, it's it's more ideal. Um, secondly, the Stellarator can run in, in an ignited state. It, it requires very little recirculating power to keep it moving, to keep it running. In fact, once you get it started, all you have to keep doing is add fuel. It's almost like, like a campfire, right? You get it started, you know, you rub the sticks together, get it going, and then you get you get the fire started. You just have to keep adding logs. That's the case with the Stellarator. You just keep adding that hydrogen fuel to keep it running. Whereas with other approaches like the Tokamak, there's a lot of recirculating power you need to put back in to keep it heated, to keep it going. And so that kind of takes away the available power that you can use to to provide electricity. So um, it has those real key. And then I think the third main thing is it, is the it doesn't have these instabilities in the plasma. These instabilities are called disruptions, and they can lead to kind of major downtime in a, in a device like a tokamak, 
where so all that plasma current gets terminated on a wall because of some instability event. It could be a, like a fleck of shielding coming off into the plasma, and that can really damage the reactor, lead to downtime. So they have systems they use to monitor and mitigate those things, but they themselves take you know more operational overhead and all those things. Whereas the accelerator is just this, it's a really beautiful, elegant machine that is just very predictable and inherently very simple in its nature. So there's a saying that tokamaks are easy to build, but hard to operate. Accelerators are easy to operate, but hard to build. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you very much for that explanation. The It's very thorough. And and for our listeners, you know, for when I look at the Stellarator designs that that Type 1 Energy has, um, the photos that they have, it's almost like this device is like a Frank Gehry building. It's like all twisted, all this metal is twisted and um, very, it feels very organic. And I wonder, uh, all these differences between the Tokamak and the Stellarator designs, and you're focused on the Stellarator, what makes you think that the results of focusing on that type of design um, are going to set you up for success? Like, what are the results of all of those technical aspects? So I moved into the Stellarator space from other topologies because it had that set of features that I said, hey, this is this is what meets all the goals for a utility to want to embrace a fusion power plant for producing cost-effective electricity. Because at the end of the day, you... Um, it's a commodity, you know, and so it, you're selling, you're pushing electrons, right? And it has to be cost effective. It's a dollars and cents equation. And so the Stellarator has this sort of unique combination of remaining technical risk, right? Because it is a scientifically mature concept with, um, you know, uh, these, these features that make it best suited for a power plant. So those two things, there are some really cool exotic ideas out there, right? Kind of, oh, date test, desk desktop fusion, but they're very scientifically mature. They don't have a good physics basis, some of them. So while they, you know, they 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 do look very appealing, if we're talking about getting something on the market in a time frame that matters, you have to look at the first and second horses on the on the race. And then secondly, which of those are really going to have the feature set, no existential risks, you know, from an operational standpoint, from a buildability standpoint, that are that's going to make it um most uh, easy to adopt into the market. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about that uh, adoption into the market and the timeline um, for what you're working on. Uh, when I was doing some research, you've embarked on the Fusion Direct Technology Program, um, and you're building your first viable um, pilot plant. So what does all this entail? What's your timeline that you're targeting? Uh, what could we expect from from Type 1 Energy in the future? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. So one of the advantages of the Stellarator is because it is scientifically mature. So you have decades since the 50s when it was invented uh, by Lyman Spitzer out of Princeton, um, that you have just this whole just history of work that's been done by these great scientists and engineers, really understanding the, the plasma physics and the engineering that's got it to this stage. Those are the shoulders of giants that we're sitting as a company sitting on that we're able to go, hey, now, thanks for doing all that physics work and science work. Now we're able to focus on engineering and get this into the market. So that's super exciting. And so in tandem with that is this new program that got started by the White House and the Department of Energy and really spearheaded by a, a great leader in the space named uh, Dr. Scott Shu. And um, it's a program that's modeled after NASA where it called COTS. 
And it was basically to help facilitate that transition from public space like NASA over into private space like um, SpaceX and, and Orbital. And so this private-public partnership is a milestone-based cost-share program with a bold 10-year vision to get a fusion pilot plant on the grid. So our we were one of the eight selected for this. I think there was over 40 kind of... Um, uh, you know, that that went for it. And so we were honored to be one of them. It's I think, you know, 10 years is an ambitious time frame, uh, no question. Um, but I think what's really exciting is that companies like ours and others are taking a new approach to fusion using like agile methodologies. It's not all about just what you're building, but how you're building it. So if you're taking more agile approaches to development, which traditionally like national labs and academia don't do, and and nor should they, right? They're designed to build one of experimental devices. And whereas in, in sort of Silicon Valley approach, you're able to take a more iterative, you know, approach and agile to kind of move things into the marketplace faster. I want to get back to something that I meant to ask you earlier, which is around the fuel source that you're using for this technology. And as I understand it, it's it's water as a fuel source, correct? Yeah, that's at its core. And so what happens is the, the deuterium, so in, in all water, a um, little higher concentration, I believe, in seawater is deuterium, which is a natural isotope of hydrogen. And it's like 0.03% by mass in water, in every drop of water, you have this 0.03% deuterium. And it's this um, just benign isotope of hydrogen, right? But it it is the perfect fuel um, due to what's called the fusion cross-section. When you combine it with tritium, another isotope of hydrogen, it's kind of the essentially the easiest thing to fuse and, and produce energy from. So that sort of tends to be the, the fuel of choice. So you know, our focus is on, hey, we're building the Model T4 here, right? And and we want to remove all the sort of risks and the world needs it. We need this, right? If we're going to meet our 2050 goals, uh, we need some, we you know, clean energy heavy lifters because right now we just don't have that in our arsenal. Mm-hmm. 100%. Deploy, 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 as uh, Jigger Shah would say. Um, uh, so, uh, when people think of water being uh, an input source or fuel source for this type of technology, obviously, uh, for people who have been paying attention to the climate crisis, the next thought you have is, well, isn't water going to be an even scarcer resource in the future than it is now? And uh, But as I understand it, you're not using fresh water, or are you? What Where does your water source and what are your plans for that? It would be seawater, but I, the, the clear thing is, is that you're not using the water as fuel. You're just it taking the deuterium that's contained in the water, that isotope, you're pulling that out through things like combined electrolysis and catalytic exchange, um, pulling out the deuterium and then putting the water back where it came from. You're not, you're not utilizing that water, so it, it's not going to create a, a, you know, an, a resource issue in terms of depleting water supplies. Okay, very good. Thank you for that clarity. Sure. And um, when it comes to using fusion energy on the electrical grid, you mentioned utilities uh, generally, uh, but do you um, do you see uh, a specific energy um, needs out there that this type of technology would be well suited for, or is it more of a general um, utility grid power application? Yeah, it's, it's due to the power density of fusion, um, you know, it's it's millions of times more power dense than you'd say have with coal. Um, and so that provides 
with that combined with the availability of deuterium, you have enough fuel for billions of years. Um, but it's that power density that allows you to really support energy intensive operations like desalinization, like industrial heat, um, like um, pr production of hydrogen, for instance, right? So those are all, um, right now, those are really hard things to support because they're, they're very energy intensive and it gets costly. So if you can reduce the cost of that energy, it really opens up the, the use of those um, technologies. And atmospheric decarbonization too is one of them, yeah. Well, thank you for that because for those of us who think about a lot about the future, uh, we know that, okay, water is going to be more scarce, uh, drinkable water, right? So we're going to probably need to desalinate more. But then if you look at current desalination technology, it's not not not, not a good uh, use of energy. Same thing with generating hydrogen or um, if we're going to have all these electric vehicles on the grid uh, and, and we're transitioning all of as many homes as possible to be all electric homes, that's a lot of electricity that we need to use. And uh, current technologies really aren't up to the task. So I like that you're kind of making a connection between what you're going to be able to do with this technology and, and it kind of matches up with some of the problems we're anticipating in the future of needing more energy or use at higher dense energy. Yeah, we are, are the energy demand is increased. This is the energy dilemma, right? We have this increased demand in energy due to electrification or emerging economies where people are now, you know, more in, of the globe is moving into middle class and they want access to modern energy. But at the same time, we need to decarbonize our, decarbonize our energy sources. So it's like, how do we do this, right? Um, you know, still China, for instance, used 70% of its power still comes from coal, right? So we have to change this. It's, you know, 2023, for goodness sake. So we, uh, we, we really need to, and that's why you're just seeing a massive mobilization uh, towards fusion. It, the the space I moved in the space seven years ago it is unrecognizable than than from when I came in. I mean, just in terms of the amount of money that's gone into the space, I think people have really woken up to the the necessity of fusion to complement existing clean energy sources as sort of a base load power source. It's twenty four seven base load you know, site near where the energy is needed. Um, these complement very well with wind and solar and these other approaches. Okay, so there's this age-old joke for those of us who have been involved in the energy space for a long time that anything related to nuclear is always like 10 to 20 years out. And and it's always it's always like just out of reach in the future. So when you think so when you think of your timeline, so are you thinking by 2050 we should have some commercialized plants up and running or what do you think is going to happen so for instance you know like commonwealth fusion systems they their goal is by 2050 to have like 10,000 of their systems arc systems on the market um which would be great to see in the more short term though in 10 years um i think we'll see the first pilot plant i think we can see one in the 2030s the first fusion pilot plant but one thing i i loved um at the rpe summit uh neil degrasse tyson started talking about fusion and he he spoke about sort of how things how quickly things can accelerate so he showed this picture of in times square there were all these horses and then within um and one car one one horseless carriage right in the middle and then smash cut 13 years later same area and it was all cars and one course, right? And that was just in a 13-year time frame. you had that transformation. I think that 
we're going to see the same with fusion. I think that we will see that tipping point that once you get to that net gain position, you're going to see the floodgates open up at that point, fully open up. I've, we've seen it sort of open up a bit, I feel, in the last few years, but you're going to see a massive opening of, in terms of resources, expertise, knowledge. So you're going to see a, nat, a, a massive inflect, you know, inflection point. Um, and uh, that's what's exciting. So I think that we're going to see that this decade, right? And so certainly a lot of the uh, companies have plans to demonstrate engineering net power in in this decade, you know, in 2027 or that area. And I think then you're going to just see an insane mobilization of resources and um, and capital and all that coming into the space. That's awesome. Um, I wonder too, like, is it, I guess, I suppose, you know, given enough time, Given a long enough timeline, anything can be feasible. But I'm curious, um, would this type of technology be useful in space? Like, could like given a big enough space vessel ship, you could potentially use this as an engine for for a ship? Yeah, as a power source. I mean, some some companies are based solely around um, like Helicity Space. They're focused around um, pure like as fusion rocket, right? And there have been ones on the book since the 50s. Um, and they're really cool to read those stories and, and look at those designs. Um, and the neat thing about space applicant, like if you want to use it as a propulsion source, I mean, it would it would reduce your travel time to say down to Mars for a month, right? Instead of taking two years, it takes you a month. Yeah, it's crazy. The specific impulse is insane. Um, but again, a lot of those sort of really are are kind of they're still they they have a long way to go in terms of demonstrating net power from those systems. They're still from that again that triple product. They've got a, a long path ahead of them. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we went through all my questions. Is there a topic that you wanted to discuss that we haven't touched on or a question you thought I'd ask that I didn't? Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask you, like, what, what's your passion for fusion and energy space in particular? What what what, uh, what do you find? What areas do you find most uh, intriguing as in for the next 20 years? Well, like you were, the reason I've, I've always found... Um, uh, fusion so interesting is it like I said it's like the holy grail of energy if we can figure this out it answers a lot of of challenges uh, for for humanity broadly both on this planet and off the planet um, and it it also like I like how you were describing it as sort of like the what did you say the I forget the term you use, but it's this sort of like this root energy, the very base, like the basic level of energy, you know, we're getting, this is what the sun does. And, and if, and if we can recreate that on a human level, it just, it opens up so many amazing possibilities. And, um, and so that's, what's always intrigued me about it. And I'm a futurist. I love I love thinking about the future and sci-fi and all this stuff. So, of course, like it's always felt like a very sci-fi type of technology. And then to hear what you're working on and other folks, it's it's becoming reality, which is is very exciting um, to watch, because sometimes you think of these these technologies which are doing great in the lab. And it's like it's that's awesome. But let's can it be reality? And when it starts to become reality, that's when you're kind of like, your little brain starts to explode a little bit because it, it's just really cool. Um, and there's all these, there's, um, of course, there's um, small modular reactors on the the uh, fission side of things. 
um, which uh, people uh, seem to have excitement around. But for myself, it still seems like it's it, it, it's that kind of still has a lot of the same problems that larger fission plants have. And um, and and so especially around the waste and and that kind of thing. So to be able to move to something that is using fuel uh, or, or gathering its fuel source from a natural uh, product without depleting that resource and and having you know very minimal waste um, it, it that it just it it's it's a no-brainer to me if we can once we get it you know scaled up and, and working I mean one of the things I learned was just how powerful access to modern energy is there's no factor that has a more profound effect of bringing people out of poverty than just access to modern energy, right? To, right. To, to then, so they're not focused on survival necessity things. And now they're able to focus on, on thriving instead of just surviving. That's, that's really exciting. Th this idea that we can just elevate from what we're doing now as a species fighting over resources and, and gas and oil, and that's happening and, you know, messing up our planet, you know, and with pollution and climate change, like, we got to find better ways and there are solutions and we've got a, so many creative minds um, on this planet. And I'm just super honored to be working with these scientists and engineers and, and all of the support people uh, myself included as, as a support person that uh, it, it's just, it's a, it's a great time to be alive and to see this happening, but we have to move quickly. Yeah. Yes, we do. We have to move quickly. We get a chance to move quickly. That's what I like to say. Cause have to feels very like, feels feels very forced right we get to we get to choose this future and and move quickly and it's going to be hard and it's going to be a lot of work and the payoff for anything that lives on this planet is huge so we have a responsibility to do it no it's so true yeah we're not the only ones on this planet so we got to think about everything and everybody <laughs> and you know what i like to say like we're there's no guarantee that there's another earth like this anywhere in the universe. Now, science tells us that the probability is, you know, a lot of the, the, the million, I think it's like millions, I'm, I'm sure somebody will correct me, of uh, livable, you know, Goldilocks planets, but you have no guarantee that there's actually life there. Like what had to happen for this planet to, 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 to grow life is mind boggling to me. You need a moon, you need a Jupiter, Jupiter's catching everything that's coming through. The moon is helping, you know, with the tides. And there's just, it. sometimes it feels like that we got really lucky. And when there's no guarantee that there's another spaceship Earth like we have here. So we we get a chance to protect it. Yeah, it, I mean, you look at these, I, have you looked at any of the images from Mars and some, you know, these 4K resolution 360 images of Mars. Okay. And you just look, you look at those and it's like, oh, it's a complete desert. It's just like void. <laughs> just, and you just look at our planet and it's so verdant and so rife with abundance and life. And yeah, it, seeing those images of other planets just makes me love this one, you know, even more. And we, we have to do everything we can to, to protect it. Well, Earthlings, there you have it. From Earth to Mars in two months on Fusion Energy.
In the near future, a pilot demonstration plant in 10 years and commercialization by 2050 is more than enough to look forward to. However, if we do have seven years to turn back the worst effects of climate change, fusion energy isn't going to save us there. However, in a future where nearly everything is being powered by electricity or hydrogen, we are going to need carbon-free baseload power to complement renewables, and this is where fusion energy will carry the day. I really like how Randall describes this technology as a drop-in replacement for fossil fuel generation plants, because we can reuse all of the existing infrastructure there. So keep your sensors pointed at Type 1 Energy. We're very, very excited to see how their technology develops. Before we go, we have a new segment for the end of our shows where we'll be highlighting something that restores our faith in humanity. I don't know if you're like me, but I need my faith restored almost on a daily basis. Today, we're highlighting the siblings behind Sungai Watch, Gary Kelly and Sam Benchagib in Bali, Asia. They design simple trash barriers and are operating a collection, sorting, and upcycling system, tackling plastic pollution in Indonesia's waterways. So far, they and 85 river warriors have successfully removed 3 million pounds of plastic waste in nine villages with 180 floating plastic barriers and over 700 community cleanups. I grew up in Indonesia and I saw that plastic pollution was getting worse and worse throughout the years, Sam told the Good News Network. Some of our success stories include seeing fish populations return to what was once extremely polluted waterways, reviving mangrove forests after removing layers and layers of plastic, which were suffocating the mango trees. These siblings are just one example of the countless earthlings around the world making things better. And I hope you will take inspiration from this to make your little corner of this blue-green space flower better for generations to come. As you know, it's the only one we have. <laughs> 